If you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm just going to read two verses from here as we set the scene for a series that I'm going to be teaching over the next, well probably it's going to be a few months because some Sundays I'm going to be away. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, it says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. How you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now that's a big topic. It's talking about everything to do with church life, how we function in church life. But I want to go really to the heart of a problem area. I want to go to that problem of disciplining people within the church. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I am constantly, it seems these days, having to deal with people who've been hurt through church disciplinary procedures. Not necessarily in this church, but there does seem a tendency at the moment to exercise church discipline in a way that isn't always consistent. And because of that, people can get hurt. And I have friends who are really struggling now in their walk with the Lord because of some inappropriate church discipline. Even this last week, I was faced with a situation where a church took some decisions that had major implications for some of their church members. And I'm not sure that they actually put all of the correct ingredients in place when they took that decision. So there are some very important issues when it comes to church discipline. And when it goes wrong, it can cause a lot of problems. And I know that there are some reasons why it goes wrong. For example, it's quite understandable that church leaders can feel insecure. We can all feel insecure. It's just part of being human, isn't it? But if the church leadership feels insecure, there are times when church discipline is not necessarily even-handed. There's that verse in Hebrews where it talks about us having had fathers who disciplined us for their pleasure. (laughs) And sometimes if you get into a situation where people are disciplining for their convenience because maybe someone is a bit irritating to them and there's a personality clash and so there's a discipline that results out of a personality clash. That's not appropriate because there needs to be other principles in place than simply leadership personality issues, doesn't there? There are also cultural things that come into play when it comes to church discipline. Seems to me that having travelled a bit around the world, different nations have different approaches when it comes to church discipline. And uh, that can even happen within a continent. You can go to West Africa where church discipline can be extremely uh, firm and you can go to other parts of Africa where it is considerably less firm. And so national culture can come into it. Also there's denominational culture. And different denominations have different cultures when it comes to church discipline. And uh, it's not necessarily the churches that have been around longest that are the harshest. In fact, some of those that have been around longest appear to be the 
the softest. <laughs> and some of us might say, oh, in those strands and streams we need to see more discipline. Sometimes it's the churches that come from a brethren tradition or a Pentecostal tradition that have risen up in more recent years that uh, want to demonstrate, it would seem, their order and church discipline in those situations can be firmer. Now I'm not going to say what's right and what's wrong in terms of individual practice. But what I want to do is to come back from the realm of personalities, national culture, denominational culture, leadership, insecurity, and all of these kind of things, and just come back and say, what are the biblical principles when it comes to um, disciplining within the church? And if you understand this, you'll understand something of my heart, and I believe you'll understand something of the culture of this particular church that you're part of. But more than that, I want us to understand Scripture. And to be honest, if as we go through Scripture, I see things that we need to change, then I'm open to change. Because I'm not preaching myself here, I'm not preaching my personality or my denominational convictions or my national culture. I'm trying to get beyond those kind of things and say, what does the Word of God say about church discipline? Alright? And I think that Church discipline really works when you pull certain things together. And the things that I would pull together are these. That if church discipline is going to be biblical, number one, the Holy Spirit has to be honoured. Number two, personal responsibility has to be honoured. Number three, privacy has to be honoured. And I'm going to go through these, not all today, but I'll be going through these and I'll be giving you scriptural reasons for each of these. Honouring the Holy Spirit, honouring personal responsibility, honouring privacy, honouring the fellowship of the church. That's really important because we discipline for the church's sake. Honouring the whole question of personal destiny because we also discipline because we've got people's spiritual destiny in mind and then honoring spirituality you remember Galatians 6 says let those who are spiritual restore such a one so we need to honor spirituality now this isn't pick and mix this isn't oh I think we'll honor the Holy Spirit but we won't worry too much about personal responsibility or oh, I think we ought to honor that principle of people's destiny but we won't worry too much about the church I believe that church discipline works when all six of these things are in place and there's an honoring of the Holy Spirit personal responsibility privacy the fellowship people's ultimate destiny and that whole issue of spirituality. And I want us to bear that in mind because if you just tune into one part of this message, you might think that you've grasped the whole understanding. Whereas really I think it's going to take all six of these messages put together for us to really understand what church discipline is in the Bible. So that's our, our outline for the whole series. And I'm going to begin today by talking about honouring the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to grasp the nettle by reading Acts 5, 1 to 11, which is, for many people, the ultimate example of church discipline. And I want us to look at this together. Acts 5, 1 to 11. And this is the passage about Ananias and Sapphira. 
You know, it's always good to go to the passages that perhaps would scare you most. So, well, we'll talk about church discipline as long as we don't mention Ananias and Sapphira. Well, folks, Ananias and Sapphira are mentioned in the Bible, and so we're going to have to look at Ananias and Sapphira. There are also some other really challenging things when it comes to church discipline. For example, Paul telling the church at Corinth that someone needs to be delivered to Satan. Well, we're going to have to look at that as well. I'm not going to walk an easy path in this. Church discipline in the Bible is church discipline in the Bible. And if we don't look at the whole picture, we're going to end up out of balance. So we're going to have to do the toughies as well as the easies. Alright, and so we're going to start with Acts 5, 1 to 11, and here we go with Ananias and Sapphira. Now listen carefully, because there are presuppositions that you might be bringing to the text that we're going to have to look at together. Because we want to know what the Bible actually says, and we want to understand what actually happened on that day. It says, a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these things, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. I don't know why she was three hours later. I mean, if it was anything like this church, perhaps she'd been trying to find a parking space. But um, she was three hours later, all right? I don't know why. Interesting to note that it was still the same meeting going on. For those of you who think meetings ought to only last 45 minutes, this one was going on long enough for her to arrive three hours late. Now, that's not an invitation to people to start arriving three hours late, all right? Let's carry on with the text. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Well, we're starting with honouring the Holy Spirit. And it might have surprised some of you that my list didn't start with honouring the Father, honouring the Son, honouring the truth. 
You might have thought all of those things would come in the list. But in reality, when you honour the Holy Spirit, you honour the Father. You honour the Son. You honour the truth, because He is the Spirit of truth. You honour holiness when you honour the Holy Spirit, because He is the Spirit of holiness. You honour integrity when you honour the Holy Spirit. So honouring the Holy Spirit actually means that we are lining up with so much of God's plan and purpose. So what does it mean to honour the Holy Spirit? Well, if we were just to honour truth, we might miss out on honouring grace. You might decide, for example, that in order to do church discipline, you have to be extremely ruthless. But I would question whether ruthlessness honours the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not just the Spirit of truth, He's also the Spirit of grace. And if we're going to honour the Holy Spirit, we may need to hold back in some of our crusades for righteousness, particularly when it's our own self-righteousness that's being involved. So honouring the Holy Spirit doesn't just mean taking on the Holy Spirit's priorities as far as truth is concerned. It means actually taking on the Holy Spirit's methodology so that we behave in the way that the Holy Spirit would behave. So it's not just saying, oh, the Holy Spirit would be really grieved about this. It's also saying, how would the Holy Spirit want us to act in putting it right? Because wouldn't we be foolish in the extreme if in order to deal with one situation that we consider to be dishonouring to the Holy Spirit, we dealt with it in a way that was dishonouring to the Holy Spirit in our dealing with it. So honouring the Holy Spirit is a big topic. It doesn't just mean setting up standards for people's behaviour that we are focusing on. It means standards for our own behaviour in rectifying the things that are challenging. Honouring the Holy Spirit. We have to honour his personality. We have to honour his ministry. We have to remember that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. And we have to leave him space to fulfil his ministry. It's not our responsibility to take over from the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is convicting someone of sin, he doesn't necessarily need your help to come along and convict them even further. All of these things are a challenge to us in honouring the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings forgiveness. If we are unforgiving, then we are not honouring the Holy Spirit. So honouring the Holy Spirit is to me the great starting point when it comes to church discipline. We don't only honour his truth stand, but we honour his methodology and the way that he works and we honour his ministry and we allow room for the Holy Spirit to work. It doesn't honour the Holy Spirit if we make out that he is impotent or negligent. You know? Well, the Holy Spirit's had long enough to sort this problem out. I'm taking control now. You know, some church discipline feels a little bit like that to me. You know, we've given the Holy Spirit a fortnight, but it's time that we did something. Hmm? Well, just be careful with those kind of things because we have to maintain that honouring of the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to work in people's lives, convicting, 
bringing them to repentance, bringing forgiveness into people's lives. We work with him (laughs) in sensitivity. In this passage, (laughs) I think we see Peter honouring the Holy Spirit, but Ananias and Sapphira dishonouring the Holy Spirit. So in that picture, both the negative and the positive, we can learn on how the Holy Spirit should be honoured in church discipline. Now I'm going to touch on three things, two of which I'm going to bring up later in the series. The three things I'm going to touch on are divine sensitivity, personal responsibility and church unity. I'm actually going to devote a whole session later to personal responsibility and a whole session to what it means to honour the fellowship of the church. But under divine sensitivity, I'm also going to mention this question of honouring destiny and honouring spirituality. And when I'm talking about personal responsibility, I'll also mention the need to honour privacy. So in some ways, today is like bringing all the themes together as a general introduction. So it'll help us to see where we're going in the rest of the series. Because I hope you're really going to take this to heart and get a lot out of it. Divine sensitivity. Let's just look at three parts of verses here. In verse 3, it says in the middle of the verse, Acts 5, 3, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, at the end of the verse, it says, You have not lied to men, but to God. And at the beginning of verse 9, When Peter's speaking to Sapphira, he says to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Now, I'm not sure that that is how they started out. They didn't sort of get together and have a conversation and say, let's push the Holy Spirit to the limits on this one, shall we? Let's see if we can really test out his grace and his goodness. I don't think they thought for a moment, well, I know what we do. We won't just lie to the church. We'll lie to the Holy Spirit. I don't think they made those as conscious decisions because we don't go through life making our decisions like that. But our decisions do have implications. When we lie, we do not just harm ourselves and the people that we lie to. We also grieve God. And it's bringing God into the picture that's so important. And I think they left God out of the picture. They thought they could do all of this and get away with it because somehow God wasn't looking or God wouldn't know. (laughs) The reality of this is that God always knows. God always knows and God feels these things. And when you're talking about honouring the Holy Spirit, just remember that when God speaks about the Holy Spirit, he actually attributes a level of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. When God gave his son Jesus, he gave him to the whole world. And we know what the world did with Jesus. They crucified him. But when God gave his spirit through his son, it was his intention to give him to the church. He expected the church to treat the Holy Spirit with honour. In fact, the Father is very jealous about the way that we treat the Holy Spirit. 
I believe that the Godhead has this interdependency. I believe that the Spirit is very concerned about the way we treat Jesus because the Spirit does not look for his own interest, but looks after the interests of the Son. But it seems that the Father has a particular interest in watching over the reputation of the Holy Spirit. And there are certain things that God the Father will not put up with when it comes to our treatment of the Holy Spirit. Now don't get the impression that the Holy Spirit is a weak, timid spirit who backs off at every opportunity. Hmm? Sometimes people get the impression that the moment you sin, the Holy Spirit disappears. No, he doesn't. If the Holy Spirit disappeared the moment that someone sinned, there would never be any repentance. And if there was no repentance, there'd never be any forgiveness, because you come to repentance through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit doesn't disappear when you sin. He has to move into a different realm of operation, bringing conviction into your life. Now, if you want proof of that, think of Psalm 51, which is David's great psalm of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. What does he say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay? Now, he'd committed adultery, he'd committed murder, and he was still able to say, don't take the Holy Spirit away. So the Holy Spirit had stayed alongside even though there had been adultery and murder. Now, the Holy Spirit did not approve of the adultery. The Holy Spirit did not approve of the murder, but the Holy Spirit stayed alongside in order to bring conviction. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit was grieved by those actions. In fact, there are four categories, if you like, of sin against the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It talks about the Holy Spirit being grieved, talks about the Holy Spirit being quenched. You know that the Holy Spirit is putting a zeal within your heart and you are doing your best to be apathetic. In fact, you don't have to try to be apathetic, do you? <laughs> if you try to be apathetic, you're no longer being apathetic. It just comes naturally, doesn't it? Well, that is quenching the Holy Spirit's fire. And that is also, if you like, a sin against the Holy Spirit as he's trying to turn you into a generous, zealous effective person and you're going no way, no way, no way you are putting out the Spirit's fire that disappoints the Holy Spirit deeply you can resist the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit has encouraged you to move on in your Christian life and you're saying no, no, no you can be resisting the Holy Spirit sometimes the Holy Spirit is prompting you with directions a great example in the Bible of someone who resisted the Holy Spirit's directing of course was Jonah when the Holy Spirit was saying, go to Nineveh, he was saying, no, go to Nineveh. So he was resisting the Holy Spirit. But there's a fourth category. And it's the category of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this one's a real challenge. Because it says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Even though blasphemy against the Son, it seems, can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now let me just explain the technical reason for that. The technical reason for that is very simple. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, at that point the Holy Spirit does withdraw. And if the Holy Spirit has withdrawn, then how are you going to come to repentance? 
No matter how much people try and persuade and cajole you and try and convict you, if the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, then you will not come to repentance. Now, don't jump to conclusions about people. Because the Holy Spirit is more persistent than most of us give credit for. Just remember, David, I'm not advocating this, committed adultery, murdered, and he still had not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that we should push as far as we can go, because if we've got that mentality, I think as soon as you start trying to push as far as you can go, you are already in danger of that. How do we know whether someone's blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, that's a very, very difficult question to answer. All I can say is that if someone has blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then try as you might right through to the moment of their death and you will not get a flicker of spiritual response from them. But you can't actually say for sure that someone has really reached that level right up until that moment of death because there are plenty of people who've turned to the Lord in that moment of death and you know that even if at that moment they come to repentance there's forgiveness and there's restoration but we're talking about repentance not remorse there's a lot of people that get into remorse oh I'm so sorry that this has happened to me but they're not sorry for having done it and there's a big difference so you need to be very careful about this category of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that there's this sensitivity with the Holy Spirit. And we've got to be careful that we don't grieve Him. We've got to be careful that we don't resist Him. That we don't quench Him. And blaspheming Him means that at that particular point you have so given up on the Holy Spirit's prompting and his moving in your life. You've so turned your back on anything the Holy Spirit wants to do that he's withdrawn. Now, I don't think that is a common occurrence. But the Bible tells us that if that happens, there is no restoration. There is no restoration. So, I'm, I always believe the best. I always want to believe that, that we can just press on and still see someone come back through. And I believe that that we have to do in order to honour the Holy Spirit. You see, you might think that you honour the Holy Spirit by saying, I think you've behaved so badly that the Holy Spirit must have walked out on you by now. Hmm? Now, you might think that's honouring the Holy Spirit, but if the Holy Spirit hasn't walked out, you haven't honoured the Holy Spirit in saying that. Can you see what I'm saying? You honour the Holy Spirit when you stay in line with what he's doing. And even if you've got someone who's a multiple murderer and goodness knows what, and the Holy Spirit is still trying to bring that person to repentance. If you give up on that person, you have not honoured the Holy Spirit. Understand what I'm saying. Now, in this context, we need to be careful. Because I know the Catholic Church traditionally has come up with these categories of mortal sin and venial sin. You know, the sin that grieves the Holy Spirit and can't be forgiven, and the sins that you can get away with <laughs> and can be forgiven. But we need to be very careful about that. See, sometimes people say to me, I don't know what the sin against the Holy Spirit is, but I'm sure that Ananias and Sapphira committed it. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. Why am I not sure? Because what we're talking about is spiritual death, not physical death. 
Now, when they died physically, what actually happened was that they were expedited, moved along a bit more quickly, to face the Lord. But whether they had actually sinned the unforgivable sin or not, I have to leave to God. I can't say whether they were spiritually dead. I can tell you they were physically dead because it says so here. And there's proof of that. They were physically dead. But whether that was an indication that they'd sinned the unforgivable sin, I'm not entirely sure. I think we still have to be careful. I don't know. There's something else that strikes me when I read this as well. And I know I'm having to be careful here. But have you noticed that Peter didn't actually pronounce judgment on Ananias? And this worries me, you know. There are some people who like to pronounce judgment. I've heard preachers who've said, you know, if you do such and such, you will drop dead. You know, and I will personally, you know, <laughs> you know, believe for that. <laughs> but I don't think Peter did that. All he did was to expose Ananias' sin. And, I, and there was no indication that Peter knew what was going to happen next. Nothing. If you read the text, the next thing could have been that Ananias was going, I, 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 I don't really know um, uh, what to say on that particular point. Uh, you've caught me on that one, Peter. Um, but what happened was he dropped dead. Now, Peter might have been surprised as the next person. As far as Peter was concerned, he just confronted the man on his sin. I mean, pastors do this quite often. Right? Confront people on what they've done. It could be a natural explanation at this point. You could say, the man was so overwhelmed with guilt that he just dropped dead on the spot. It wasn't Peter's judgment. We can say it was divine judgment, but we can't say it was Peter's judgment. We can't say that the church passed sentence on Ananias that Ananias should die on the spot. I'm just, you know, we're talking about church discipline, all right? There's nothing here which says that if the church chooses, it can say to brother so-and-so, I don't like what you've done, drop dead. Hmm? Okay? There's nothing there which, which suggests that. All that was done was the sin was exposed and presumably the guilt. There might even have been repentance at that particular point. I don't know. Who knows what happens at the moment of death? I don't know. Ananias could have just been overwhelmed with his guilt and cried out. I don't know what happened. I know he died. I know he died. And I know they carried him out and they buried him. But I don't see Peter pronouncing judgment on him. All I see is Peter exposing the sin. So we need to be careful. Now, when Sapphira comes three hours later, he confronts her. Now, that particular point, I think he was well aware that if God had moved in judgment on Ananias and she's committed the same sin, there's every possibility that God's going to move in judgment on her as well. 
Again, I don't think he was pronouncing judgment so much as speaking out the inevitable consequence. If you did this with your husband and your husband died, and he was giving her an opportunity to clear herself, which wants me to move on, really, because I, I think we've, we've seen now that the Holy Spirit is sensitive, and we need to be aware of the sensitivities of the Holy Spirit. We need to be aware of the sensitivities of the Holy Spirit that we don't grieve, offend, resist, lie to the Holy Spirit. But we also need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when it comes to the way that we deal with those people who we see have lied or have got it wrong in these particular ways. We need to register the Spirit's sensitivity. I was just saying we need to be careful about this whole concept of mortal and venial sins. You see, you can't say automatically that some sins are mortal sins and some sins are not. Because it isn't actually the nature of the sin that is the issue, it's the attitude to the Holy Spirit that is the issue. The sin that leads to death is not capable of being categorized. I can't actually come up with a list and say, these sins will lead to death. You know, class A murder as opposed to class B murder. You know, one comes in this category, one comes in that. I'd even be cautious about suicide because I know that some people say, well, suicide must be an unforgivable sin because you don't have time to repent of it. But then if someone's balance of mind is disturbed, I think you're in a whole totally different realm and different range anyway. So you have to handle these things with real care. It's not whether you've had opportunity to repent of that sin. Hmm? You just need to be careful about this. Now I know we need to keep short accounts with God. But when we're talking about sins that aren't forgivable... We're not just talking about, I hope that the moment that I die, I've managed to confess everything that I've just done. I wouldn't want to die with unconfessed sin in my life. You understand what I'm saying? The issue isn't the nature of the sin, it's actually the attitude to the Holy Spirit that's the issue. If you resist the Holy Spirit to the point of shutting him out and blaspheming him, that is the problem. Hmm? You can unpack some of this on your own. Or if you get really stuck unpacking it, come and talk to me. <laughs> I'll spend more time with you on it. But I just want to point that out to you now. We're not talking about categories of sin. We're talking about attitudes to the Holy Spirit. All right? Let's move on to personal responsibilities. I want to touch on that, and I want to touch on church unity before we finish. Let me just read again these verses here in Acts 5. Let's look at verse 3. I want us to be really clear about this area of personal responsibility. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And then moving on to Sapphira, Peter says to her, verse 9, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? There was personal responsibility. 
One of the things that concerns me about churches that have a very strong disciplinary um, policy is that sometimes they undermine personal responsibility. If you're in a situation where the church is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks if you get it wrong, the church will probably have already determined what you've got to do to get it right. You could end up being in a church that is very manipulative and very controlling. And sometimes churches that are very strong on discipline do seem to be churches that have a huge expectation for people to toe the line to the point where you wonder what personal responsibility there is. It seems that in some places, the only responsibility that you've got is about as much responsibility as an automaton would have had, where you go around saying, yes, pastor, no, pastor, whatever you say, pastor, I will do that, pastor. And, and if you get it wrong, then, boy, do you have to face pastor. Hmm? But I just want to say that I don't believe that that is what we're talking about. You know, in fact, <laughs> if you're in that kind of situation... Church discipline is not really what it ought to be. It just becomes part of a whole control structure. Church discipline really should come in into a situation where there's great liberty, but people exceed the bounds of the liberty. Because liberty is only liberty if it has some boundaries. (laughs) If it's limitless, (laughs) then limitless liberty can actually be quite difficult to live with. We need some boundaries, but those boundaries do not need to be drawn so tightly that people have no individual responsibility. Now, you could misread this passage. You could go back a little bit further in Acts 5, and you could discover that people were bringing their gifts and laying it at the apostles' feet. You could discover that people were selling land and bringing all the money from the land and laying it at the apostles' feet. You could read about Barnabas, who got a really great reputation, a son of encouragement, because he sold the land that he had and gave all of the money to the apostles. Hmm? Now, you could assume that the church in Jerusalem was a kind of cult which says, if you join this church, you've got to sell everything that you've got and you lay it at the apostles' feet. If you think that, you are wrong. You are wrong. The church in Jerusalem was extremely liberating. There was no dogmatics on this point. Hmm? There was a huge need. All of these people had come up for a weekend, you know, or the festivities, and they'd stayed on (laughs) because they'd come into the church. And so the resident believers in Jerusalem were having to sustain a whole lot of people who were living with them from other parts of the country whilst the church was established. You know what happened in Acts 2 and you can see how it follows out from there. But there was no three-line whip which says, if you live in Jerusalem and you've got property, you are required by this church to sell everything that you have and put it at the apostles' feet. It is expected of you. It was not like that. If it was like that, why would Barnabas have been called son of encouragement? He would just be Joe Bloggs who did the same as everybody else. He wouldn't have stood out. He'd have just been another automaton that had done everything that was asked of him. No, he stood out because of his spirit of generosity. There was room for him to be generous. And people were doing what they could. And there was no obligation. This is why Peter says to Ananias, you know, that property was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And when you'd sold it and you'd got the money, 
you know, the money was yours. <laughs> you could have spent the money on whatever you wanted. Gone out and bought a new car if you wanted. Well, I know he couldn't, but you know what I mean. <clears throat> but it was his. You could have decided that you were going to give 5% to the church. 10% is what's required. No, it doesn't say even that, does it? <laughs> you know, you could have given us you know, fraction, minimal amount. Just a token. It's yours. You can do what you want with it. You're free. See, the problem wasn't in their giving. The problem was that they decided that they, they decided that they were going to make out that they were in the top echelons of generosity within the church. We want to be seen as Mr. and Mrs. Generous. We don't have to give it all. We can just give a bit and tell them this is everything, you know. Please accept these 500,000 pounds. That's all we got from the sale of our house. <laughs> that was the problem. They decided that they wanted reputation in the church as being Mr. and Mrs. Generous so that everyone would look up to them and respect them. That's what they did wrong. Now I've got another question. We're going to come to this whole area of privacy. People are entitled to privacy. In fact, Jesus is very strong on this in Matthew 18. He's basically saying, don't expose anyone publicly until you've had the opportunity to challenge them privately. And don't just challenge them privately once. If they don't listen to you when you go on your own, challenge them privately again, taking someone else along with you. You hold back until you bring this to the church. Don't let's make a big public thing of this. Now I'm left with the question, why was Peter dealing with this publicly? Well, there are two possible answers. One possible answer is, he might have been dealing with this couple privately for months. You don't know, do you? You don't know what Ananias and Sapphira have been up to till this point in time. They might already have had a tendency to try and put themselves about as Mr. and Mrs. Spiritual. The church leadership might have been talking to them behind the scenes and saying, you've got to change your behavior pattern. You know, if you don't change your behavior pattern, sooner or later this will have to come to the church. But this tendency that you have for self-aggrandizement, you've got to deal with it. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know what was going on behind the scenes. It might possibly have been that this was the last straw with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah? They had been dealt with privately. We don't know. We know that Peter would have wanted to have obeyed what Jesus said. Because he was there when Jesus said it. Deal with people privately before you deal with them publicly. So there is a possibility that this was the last straw with Ananias and Sapphira. They'd already gone through all the private situations in past instances of going for self-aggrandizement. We don't know. So I don't want to make an argument from silence on that, but I don't want you at the same time to make an argument for instant public uh, rebuke of people. Because we don't know. But the other thing I'd want to bring in is this, that here was a situation 
where what they were doing was so public <laughs> that it was going to be quite difficult to deal with it privately. <laughs> now, you could still have dealt with it privately. You could have said something like, well, just leave your gift here and we'll just have a word outside. Hmm? Now, some of you don't know this, but you know that moment in a wedding service where you say to the congregation that if any of you know any cause or just impediment why these two people may not be joined together in holy matrimony, you now declare it? You know that moment in the service? What you don't know is that everyone who takes a wedding service is trained in what to do next. If someone shouts out, I know why they shouldn't get married. Hmm? What you're told is that when someone shouts that out, it's never actually happened to me, you say, um, would you like to come to the front and we can just go aside and have a word about this? You're actually told not to have a public debate about whether or not they can get married. You're told to take them aside and have a conversation and find out if there is any just cause, all right? It might be they say, well, actually, I'm the existing husband and here's the certificate to prove it. You know, in that particular point, you have to say, well, we just need to hold these things up a little while and if the guests would like to go off and enjoy the reception, um, <laughs> maybe we'll have the wedding at a later date. Uh, but, you know, there are ways in which you deal with these kind of things. And you try and deal with it privately before you deal with it publicly. But here was a public sin that was not just against the Holy Spirit, which is what we're looking at today, is also against the church. And even if you dealt with it privately, you'd still have had to come back and said something to the church publicly. A very difficult situation. But I don't want us to override the principle of, of privacy. And I think Peter was very clear in dealing with the personal responsibility thing. But then I think Peter was always clear on dealing with the personal responsibility. Uh, as another situation in Acts 8 where uh, Simon wanted to give money so that he could lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm? He'd seen Peter and John lay hands on people and saw that you know, things happened when the Holy Spirit was given. And he thought, For how much will I have to pay you so that I can lay hands on people and they can you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit? And Peter says, your money perish with you because you've neither part nor lot in this matter. You are thinking that the gifts of God can be bought with money. And at that particular point, Simon says to him, pray for me that none of these things happen to me. And it's interesting that Peter just leaves it at that particular point. Because it's personal responsibility. And that's where it has to be. Even if we're talking about church discipline to the ultimate degree, we're still left with, look, it's your responsibility. And Ananias might have said, but Satan filled my heart. Hmm? Well, who emptied your heart in the first place? You know, that Satan was able to fill it. Personal responsibility is there. And we can't take away from that. And we have to leave people with personal responsibility in church life. We can't have a church of automata. We've got to let people have room to think and be. And church discipline is there to make sure that the boundaries aren't exceeded in a situation where there's real liberty. We don't want to be a cult that's controlling. We want all of that liberty to be there. What about church unity? Well, Peter had a difficult task, didn't he? He had to protect the church and he didn't have to split the church. I am actually glad that it was God who came in at this particular point. Because I think 
that if Peter had been particularly harsh in his judgments, it could have split the church. Now this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Because when you have a strong opinion, you tend to end up thinking that everyone else shares your opinion. It's only like the pastor who sits in the position of the sorting office. You know, that's how I feel sometimes. I feel like the sorting office, where I get messages coming in from everywhere and I have to try and pigeonhole them to make sense of them. And you might think that when you come and share your opinion with the leadership, that yours is the ultimate opinion. What you don't know is that probably 50 other people have come along and expressed completely different opinions and the church leadership is trying to sort out all of these opinions saying what on earth does this church think? And sometimes it actually gets to the point where it's, it's nigh on impossible to act without splitting the church. If this had gone to the church vote, what would have happened? Hands up those who think Ananias should die. Hmm? Well, you're 50, you do, Peter, right? Okay. <laughs> right. Hands up those who think he ought to be given another chance. You see, there would be almost certainly a split if it went to the vote. Hmm? But God intervened, you see. All the church had to do was to expose the situation. And God intervened. And this is why I think Peter was honouring the Holy Spirit. He was exposing the situation and giving God the opportunity to deal with it. And God dealt with it in no uncertain terms, I know that. He thought, basically, I don't know, but this is just my, my interpretation. There's Ananias standing there, there's Peter trying to judge this, and it's as if the Lord's saying, Peter, this is a bit too big for you, I'm going to call him straight up before my throne now. <laughs> All right? Because it says that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. You know, in a sense, I know we can talk about time lapses and soul sleep and all of this kind of stuff, but, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And when that man dropped dead, you know, he didn't escape. You know, you think, oh, saved by my last breath. Because he then found himself standing before the judgment seat of God. And the same with Sapphira, you know. In the end, it wasn't the church's judgment that counted. But she was brought up short to stand straight before the judgment seat of God. And the church needs to be careful. We can't stand in the place of the Lord. And we can't split the church with our opinion of doing things. We come back to the Spirit of God. You might be past judgment. I think even the if in the and position knew football, Peter knew it might have been a word of knowledge, it might have been information.